on Textbooked. What is our job as historians? Our job is to diagnose. We are the medical doctors of society. We diagnose what has happened and point it out to people so they can see it, because you can't fix it till you see it. You're listening to Untextbook. This is a podcast that gives students and young people the power to follow our curiosity. There's so many stories throughout the world. Reading even one topic or one story can provide me a deeper dive into who I truly am and where I come from. We can better understand the trajectory we're moving on as both a nation and a society. We talk to leading journalists, historians, writers, changemakers, you name it. It's pressing, it's concerning, it was shocking. And through that, we take the history out of the textbooks. I'm Gabe Hostin. And I'm Cece Payne. And you're listening to Untextbooked. Hey, listeners, we just wrapped up our third season of the show, and we're taking a bit of a break before launching season four. If this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. We're so glad to have you. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to introduce you to Cece Payne, our youth program coordinator and producer. All season long, she's been working hard behind the scenes to get these episodes to your ears. Welcome to the show, Cece. Thanks, Gabe. Glad to be here. For those listening and meeting you for the first time, can you talk a little bit about your role in on Textbook? Absolutely. I get the amazing opportunity to work with each of our producers to bring their vision for the episode to life. When producers have a book they really love or a topic that lights them up, we work together to invite different authors and historians on the show. I love helping producers create an episode that they're proud of and can share with a large audience. What makes a Textbook so special is that it is truly driven by all of our amazing young producers. Their curiosity and creativity is the magic our listeners get to hear every week. Each producer's unique perspectives and passions give us a more well-rounded understanding of this country and world's history. Untextbooked is a history podcast where students interview historians to better understand the world. In our first season, we explored topics including medicine, food, and piracy. And in our second, We looked at the war on terror, Native American boarding schools, and population control. This past season, for our theme, we looked at how history isn't just the past. It's in all of us. We featured so many amazing topics since we relaunched last fall. When slavery was abolished, all of a sudden, all of these freed Black people that you could no longer exploit for free labor became surplus. So what did the state do with them? They devised ways in which to corral them back into unpaid, exploitative, dehumanizing labor. And in this way, mass incarceration has that same function. One sort of persistent theme through the first, I don't know, century and a half of American history was profound efforts to disarm African-Americans in particular for fear that they might rise up and overthrow a racist apartheid system. It's really hard to see any daylight between human beings and computers and computation in general now. And that's where I think our critical attention needs to be. It's not simply that you can use computers to do bad, you can use computers to do good. It seems to be that computers and digital media generally achieve such a pervasiveness 
and language economy and warfare and popular culture. What does that mean? What do we want to do with that information? Honestly, it was really difficult to narrow it down to just a handful. Every episode this season was so unique and uncovered an important part of history. Today, we're taking a closer look at some of the moments we just couldn't stop thinking about this season and why they continue to matter today. This episode is really just a taste of what we've covered all season long. So we encourage you to go back and listen to the full episodes on our feed. For our first clip, we're stepping into the past. In episode 12 of this season, Did the American Civil War Ever Truly End? Our producer, Aria Barquesa, interviews Dr. Jeremy Suri, author of Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. Dr. Suri argues that although the Civil War has long since ended, the values from that era continue to exist today in modern politics. In the clip you're about to hear, Arya and Dr. Suri take a look at the surprising way Confederates looked at John Wilkes Booth as a hero after murdering President Abraham Lincoln. First, it, it needs to be said that we underrate, at least I underrated, even though I'm a historian, I underrated the degree to which John Wilkes Booth, after assassinating Lincoln, was seen as a hero by so many people. Again, this is why research is really, really exciting. I spent a lot of time, and my son helped me too, reading old newspapers from the 1870s. It's such a great thing to do, to go back and get a sense of the time, what people were reading, what they were saying. And thanks to the Library of Congress, there's an amazing database now of newspapers from the 19th century and other periods you can get just online. And what struck me was just what you said so well in your question, Arya, that the ways in which John Wilkes Booth, after this horrific, horrible act, the first presidential assassination, is seen as he wanted to be seen by so many, by millions of Americans, as the hero slaying the tyrant, as the man who's a martyr for his larger country. It, it resonates with what you read with suicide terrorists 100 years later. And it's very much associated with the masculinity of this, right? He was a real man who stood up against the weak union that had the advantage of all these tools and toys. But he stood up, he put his body in front. And there's a way in which he's treated and the act itself, not just the the shooting of Lincoln, but then the jump onto stage and the the fleeing. And there's a way in which the physicality of this and the strength of this and the determination is emphasized in contrast to what is seen as a Union army that's now filled with African-Americans with former slaves. That's not masculine and that's not appropriate. And, and that's somehow industrialized rather than the good, strong man who's doing what he's doing. That's so deep. It seems simple, but it's so deep in the ways in which these politics are discussed. And I think we have to recognize that that kind of male violence and heroism and martyrdom is at the center of American politics for a long, long time. I mean, how can you look at Donald Trump and the crazy cult around Trump without seeing that? Or the way people are now talking about Ron DeSantis, how often is it said, you know, this person is tough, I was watching CNN the other night, and they said, yeah, Ron DeSantis, he can throw a punch. Why is that a positive thing? Why does that have anything to do with politics, with being governor of a state? But yet that said prima facie and left out there, as if everyone should understand that it's exactly the same thing. It's the same kind of association of male strength, male physicality with political efficacy. And I think that's so much of what we've been experiencing on both sides of the Atlantic 
in the last three to four years as people feel their masculinity is threatened by changes they can't control. The man who carried the biggest Confederate flag into the Capitol, Kevin Seyfried, he was a white factory worker who lost his job and was in and out of jobs for about a decade. And he didn't feel like he had any say in his life, any control, any strength in his life. He brought his son to watch him break into the Capitol because he was showing that he was a tough guy, that he would stand up. So how do we get this out of our politics? It's so deep. That's the easy part, I guess, is seeing it once you open your eyes, how deep it is in our politics, both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, as I said, but particularly in the United States. I think the way to get it out, first of all, is to recognize it, to diagnose it. What is our job as historians? Our job is to diagnose. We are the medical doctors of society. We diagnose what has happened and point it out to people so they can see it because you can't fix it till you see it. And I try to do that in the book. So we have to diagnose the problem and then we have to build alternative ways of conducting politics. I love that quote from Dr. Suri. It really underscores just how important it is, not only for historians, but storytellers and citizens like myself to take an active role in our society and the world around us. This next clip dives a little deeper into that very idea. In episode eight of this season, Is the U.S. Government Spying on Its Own Citizens? Producer Victor Yi interviews Professor Robert Shear, author of They Know Everything About You, How Data Collecting Corporations and Snooping Government Agencies Are Destroying Democracy. Professor Scheer explains how the American federal government collects our data and what happens when the institutions meant to protect our privacy opt to instead use that information for their own gain. Here's a quick refresher. In the U.S. Constitution, the Fourth Amendment protects citizens from unreasonable search and seizure by the government, but the rise of the Internet has since complicated things. Because the internet wasn't around when the Constitution was created, there's actually a lot of gray area around which parts of our privacy are protected on the World Wide Web. Victor and Professor Scheer uncover why it's important to think critically and investigate not only when it comes to protecting our own information, but also when it comes to the information we accept from our own government. Our Fourth Amendment is very much contested here. It'd be a a cruel illusion to think it protects you from government surveillance, because it doesn't. We have the most effective government surveillance of any society in the world because we're technologically most advanced, and we hide behind the idea that, hey, all we're doing is facilitating your consumer practice. I think in countries like China, I think citizens are a bit more suspicious to begin with. They know they live in an authoritarian society. They know there's one-party rule. They know the government is not always interested in their freedom, to put it mildly. They are actually more aware of the dangers. The problem in the United States, and this is what George Orwell and Aldous Huxley try to call attention to in their dystopian novels, is that in the United States, we have the illusion that government is well-intended, at least many people do, that they wouldn't spy on you, that they wouldn't hurt you. Well, that's not the case. You know, our government under Lyndon Johnson and the FBI under Jed Hoover went out to destroy Martin Luther King. That's not fake history. That's well-documented history. They spied on him 24-7. They tried to set him up. They tried to drive him to suicide, our great civil rights hero. If there's some high school student listening to us, ask your teacher, ask your social science teacher history, is this true what I just heard on this program? that the FBI and the Democrats then were in charge, Lyndon Johnson, 
that they actually went out to get Martin Luther King to commit suicide, to blackmail him, to bring up all kinds of stories about his personal life? Did they spy on him 24-7? And if your teacher doesn't know about that, they shouldn't be teaching. You should raise some questions about what kind of information you get when you're taking high school civics or social science. But that's the case. Now, the government, because of modern technology, has a lot more power than it did in the old days before the internet when Martin Luther King was the victim of FBI surveillance. Now, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, these organizations, they, there's unlimited power to frame people, not just you know find out what they're doing, but to frame them, selectively get information to destroy them, try to drive them to suicide. Yes, that's a real problem. And if you don't know that, it just means you're getting kind of fake history in high school, because, you know, it's well-documented what happened to Martin Luther King. You know, leading writers about the civil rights movement have put that in their books. But why isn't it in high school textbooks? Why, if we're a free society, wouldn't that be in the textbooks? Well, that's exactly why we're doing this podcast, for young people like myself to question, be curious, ask the right questions to those that have studied or, or have seen it from the outskirts beyond textbooks so that we can actually build a better future of democracy. So that's kind of where everything is coming from in that regard. Well, I appreciate that. I want students to check stuff out. I'm interested, as you know, because I've been your teacher, I'm interested in critical thinking. I'm not interested in establishing myself as an ultimate authority here, okay? And I appreciate you as an interviewer as well as a student because I know you challenge me at every turn, right? Right, I do. You come to my office and challenge me. Yeah, so I welcome that. And we all should welcome that. What I'm concerned about is not that people adopt my point of view or yours, but rather that they question. And fortunately, we have in our Constitution protection of our right to question. That's the heart of the American experiment. In addition to our privacy, one of our most essential rights is our right to ask questions of our government. Professor Scheer reminds us that we cannot be passive about our information, but instead we must empower ourselves by engaging in critical thinking. Our third clip presents us with an opportunity to do just that. In episode 13 of this season, How Do Democracies Die?, our producer Jessica Chiraboga interviews Professor Daniel Ziblot, author of the New York Times bestseller, How Democracies Die. In his book, Professor Ziblot argues that threats to democracy are no longer as obvious as a military coup or revolution. Instead, a democracy in danger reveals itself in much more subtle ways, including the steady decline of longstanding political norms and weakening of essential institutions like the United States press and its court systems, both of which are already in jeopardy. In the next clip, Professor Ziblot breaks down the challenges American politics is currently facing as a result of neglecting two unwritten rules that help maintain a healthy democracy. So in our political systems, there's two unwritten rules that matter a lot. One is the notion of mutual toleration, which is that you essentially treat your rivals as rivals. No matter how much you disagree with or even dislike your opponents, your opponents have a right to compete for office and if they beat you to govern. And so, in other words, you don't treat your rivals as enemies. That's an unwritten rule that's absolutely critical for democracy. Second unwritten rule that we emphasize is this, maybe a little less obvious, what we call institutional forbearance, was essentially the idea that you don't use the full power that you have under the law to the max. 
It's essentially a kind of form of self-restraint. If you use the rules to the max, if you act without forbearance, this is what we call constitutional hardball, this is what can kill a democracy because this can lead to incredible gridlock. Essentially, what are normally sort of watchdogs in a democracy have essentially become either lapdogs for a president or somebody in power, or they become attack dogs that just bring government to a standstill. So in order for democracy to work, politicians have to act with this unwritten rule of forbearance. And so acting with forbearance, acting with mutual toleration allows democracies to work. We call these the soft guardrails of our democracy, and they prevent healthy competition from spiraling into gridlock and political death. You also write that the norms sustaining our political system rested to a considerable degree on racial exclusion in the past. When we look at today, how do we bolster these democratic norms in a society where people are still politically and socially and culturally excluded and where people of different identities who maybe would have been excluded before are now running for political office? Yeah, this is a really good point that you bring up because you know, through most of American history, we weren't a democracy, really not until the 1960s. And so these norms that I just described of mutual toleration and forbearance were operating in a context in which the people running the political system were basically all white men. In some ways, it was much easier for all of these white men, despite some of their ideological differences, to act with mutual toleration towards each other, to act with self-restraint towards each other if they were not so dissimilar and they weren't frightened of each other. As our political system and our democracy has thankfully become more diverse, with women gaining the right to vote, with non-whites and African-Americans in particular in the U.S. South gaining the right to vote in the 1960s, our democracy has become much more diverse. People who previously dominated the political system regard those groups that were designated as outsiders gaining power as frightening. And so some people feel like the country that they grew up in is being taken away from them in some way. And so they regard the opposition party increasingly as dangerous, as threatening. And so it's much harder to act with mutual toleration when you fear the other side. Because if you think the other side is going to change your way of life and attack your basic interests, then you'll go use any means necessary to stop that other side. So you will no longer act with forbearance. When Barack Obama became president, there were an increasing number of Americans and particular Republicans who thought that President Obama actually wasn't born in the United States, challenging his basic legitimacy to govern. There was this incredible quote from one congressman, Mike Kaufman, who at one point said, you know, I don't know if Barack Obama was born in the United States, but I do know in his heart he's not really an American. You know, so this kind of language, you know, escalated our politics. And then once this kind of begins, there's this risk of a kind of spiral. I'm just diagnosing the problem. You asked the most difficult question, which is, well, how do we sustain these norms in a multi-ethnic democracy? And I think this is the challenge of our era, and it's absolutely essential. I mean, I think you can't have a democracy without mutual toleration, but on the other hand, you can't have a democracy if you exclude people from having the right to vote. And in the past, in American history, we made the tragic decision after the end of the Reconstruction era in the 19th century to kind of restore mutual toleration after the Civil War by allowing Jim Crow South to take root and essentially excluding people from having the right to vote. So there's some who say, we need to depolarize by sort of not talking about race so much. In effect, what this is asking us to do is to kind of overlook racial inequities for the purposes of getting along. And I think that's a trade-off that's not really worth making. And so the challenge is how to accept those who don't look like us, who don't, you know, maybe believe in different religions and who believe differently than we do, who lead different ways of life than the other side. Recognize that everybody has a right, if you're a citizen of this country, to compete for office, to vote on equal playing terms. And that's the sort of essence of the democratic challenge of our era. 
You know, when I joined Untextbook this past summer, it was clear to me from day one that I was becoming a part of something special and something that is creating a new standard for how we understand education. At Untextbooked and the History Collab, we care so deeply about empowering and uplifting students because they are the next generation of global citizens. Last summer, our producers were thinking so heavily about contemporary political debates and the topics that many of our politicians sidestep to avoid controversy, like gun violence, mass incarceration, and recent rulings by the Supreme Court. We wanted to do our part to ensure that young people would not be deprived of these topics and stories. Instead, we wanted to model how to ask harder questions about the actions of those who preceded us and use those questions as windows to examine our world today. This season was a journey of interrogation, and we really hope that everyone is able to find their place within this story so we can start to figure out some solutions. As we mentioned in the beginning, history isn't just in the past. History is now, and it's in all of us. German-American historian Heil Halburn once said, History gives answers only to those who know how to ask questions. May we continue to ask and challenge the status quo as we build toward the future we one day hope to see. The history of tomorrow begins with us today. Well, that's it for this season. Thank you so much for listening. We've included links to the full interviews of each clip you heard today in our episode description. So go back and listen. You can also find our entire catalog at untextbook.com. Be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. That way, you will never miss an episode. Untextbooked is produced by students from around the country who are curious about the world and inspired to learn history in a new way. Does that sound like you? Do you have big questions that you want to ask a historian? If so, go to untextbook.com apply and fill out the form. And if you like what we do and want to help us make it even better, go to untextbook.com donate. If you like the show, tell your friends, students, professors, and maybe even drop a review or rate the show. We'd love to hear what you think. Our website is untextbook.org and we're on social media at untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is produced in partnership with Pod People, Ann Foos, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Shirley Wong, Hannah Pedersen, Danielle Roth, Shanice Tyndall, and Michael Aquino. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer, and Cece Payne is our youth program coordinator and producer. Untextbook is a project of the History Collab, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening. Thank you.